Why do some people believe that Walt Disney's 1950 television series advertising the creation of his new theme park, Disneyland, made the trip to the moon by American astronauts possible in 1969? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hello, this is Elizabeth, and in this episode, I want to share a story about the overlapping histories of Walt Disney World and NASA. Now, Walt Disney's legacy varies from person to person. There are those who point to his ability to turn fairy tales into concrete realities at his theme parks. And then there are those bothered by the racist characterizations in many of his animated films. But what few realize is Walt's impact on the space race during the height of the Cold War. The story of how Walt and his brother helped create an empire from an animated mouse is an impressive one, but not the topic of this episode. Instead, I want to focus on just one aspect of how Walt might have changed the course of American history through his television show. Originally titled Disneyland, the Disney Company's show has had many incarnations since it first aired on ABC in 1954, and it is actually one of the longest-running primetime programs in the history of American television. I know that when I was growing up, for example, it was The Wonderful World of Disney, and it aired on Sunday nights. For me, it was Michael Eisner introducing Disney's movie or show of the week. And was there anything creepier than Disney's Mr. Boogity, which first aired in 1986? I'm going to say no. Let's get off this tangent of my personal memories and back to Walt's show, Disneyland. Naming his show Disneyland was brilliant marketing, as his first theme park, which shared the moniker, opened in 1955. The show allowed families throughout America to become familiar with this magical place where dreams came true. Disneyland was originally comprised of four different lands and one opening area. The opening area, Main Street, was an homage to an idealized small town in America. Of the lands, you have Fantasyland, home to the underappreciated small world. Adventureland, where we can all take a jungle cruise or listen to some tiki birds. Frontierland, where we can all pretend to be Tom Sawyer and his friends. And of course... Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland, as will surprise no one who knows the history of Epcot, you know, Walt's experimental prototype community of tomorrow, Tomorrowland was very close to Walt's heart. When Disneyland opened on July 17, 1955, Walt shared a few sentences about each land, and he described Tomorrowland as, quote, Tomorrowland can be a wonderful age. Our scientists today are opening the doors of the space age to achievements that will benefit our children and generations to come. The Tomorrowland attractions have been designed to give you an opportunity to participate in adventures that are a living blueprint of our future, end quote. But you know what? Walt wasn't just whistling Dixie and paying lip service to his scientists in his speech. Today, shows like The Big Bang Theory talk about how they have scientists on staff to make sure that their terminology is correct. Well, Walt had similar concerns with making his Tomorrowland, especially his rockets, as accurate as possible. And to do so, he hired three men, including Werner von Braun, a man with, to put it mildly, a complex history. Von Braun had been born to noble parents in Poland in 1912, and he was a precocious child with an interest in breaking land speed records. He even experimented with fireworks to see how fast he could get his toy cars. At age 12, he detonated one at a public event and ended up in police custody until his dad came to get him. But by the late 1930s, Von Braun had a D-fill in physics, and his interest in rockets had become overshadowed by his desire to make space travel happen. Now, in 1937, Von Braun, who had become the technical director for the German Army's Rocket Center, do you see where this is going? Joined the Nazi Party. 
In a later affidavit for the American government, and one in which he also changed the year he joined from 1937 to 1939, von Braun stated that he was required to join, and there's little evidence that he joined it for more than to keep his job and social standing in Germany. But he also has a similar answer for why he joined the SS, which was the German paramilitary, in 1940. He says he did so to keep his job and to continue to work on rockets. Now, eyewitness accounts came out in the 1990s, which present von Braun as more than happy to adopt this SS position and uniform. So what do we actually know about his background and his history? Well, we know, for example, that during World War II, the rockets that von Braun helped develop were built by concentration camp slave laborers and used in attacks on London and Antwerp. Von Braun said later that he was helpless to improve his workers' conditions, even though he handpicked them for jobs. In 1944, von Braun found himself on the wrong side of Heinrich Himmler, one of the most powerful members of the Nazi party. Himmler, who wanted personal control of Germany's military technology, including, of course, the rockets, created some trumped-up charges and had von Braun arrested for communist sympathies. He was held for two weeks and then released after being okayed by Hitler, who was convinced by others that the young man was necessary for the success of the rocket program. As the war in Europe began to reach its conclusion, von Braun assembled his staff and suggested that they surrender to Americans instead of Soviets, who were, the Soviets were known to be brutal to prisoners of war. Now, 15 years later in 1960, von Braun explained his reasoning to the American press on why he chose their country. Quote, we knew that we had created a new means of warfare, and the question as to what nation, to what victorious nation we were willing to entrust this brainchild of ours was a moral decision more than anything else. We wanted to see the world spared another conflict such as Germany had just been through, and we felt that only by surrendering such a weapon to people who are guided by the Bible could such an assurance to the world be best secured." End quote. Now, flattery, of course, will get you everywhere, and the American press ate it up in 1960. Why the reasoning behind it in 1945 slightly more complicated. But on May 2, 1945, von Braun surrendered to U.S. soldiers. By 1960, von Braun had been working with Walt Disney and had a plum spot as a head of a massive rocket program for NASA. So how did a member of the Nazi Party and SS get from surrendering to American soldiers in 1945 to this rather cush position in America in 1960? Well, von Braun's surrender was actually quite the coup, as he was one of the top German scientists Americans wanted to get their hands on by the end of the war, and he was completely willing to spill any and all beans. By the end of June 1945, the U.S. State Department had already okayed the transfer of von Braun and his specialists to America. After creating false histories for these men, which they did with all former Nazi scientists, the American government completely whitewashed their Nazi past, and the scientists were given security clearances to work in the United States. It would be von Braun's Jupiter-C rocket that carried the first American satellite into space in 1958 and launched American's space program. But it wasn't only the U.S. government and von Braun and his team who were interested in space exploration in the 1950s and 60s. The American public, for instance, was gripped by the idea of space as, a little decade early, but ahem, the final frontier and they wanted to be the ones to explore, claim, and settle it. This desire by the American public was fueled by pieces written by von Braun and published in a popular magazine known as Collier's. Collier's circulation, however, was only about 4 million families, and at the same time, about 15 million American households owned a television. It was this medium that von Braun wanted to gain access to. Enter Walt Disney. Von Braun, as mentioned along with two other men, 
was hired to act as a technical consultant for Disneyland's Tomorrowland. Further, to help create an interest in Tomorrowland and the dreams that it could make real for visitors to the theme park, Walt Disney and Von Braun collaborated on three space-related television films in the 1960s. With Von Braun's technical know-how and Disney's animation techniques, these episodes on the series Disneyland fed the public's need for more and more information about whether manned space travel was possible and how. I have actually set up links on our website to all three episodes available now on YouTube. Thanks, YouTube. On the episode, Man in Space, Von Braun said that a passenger rocket could be created and tested within 10 years. Subsequent episodes, such as Man in the Moon and Mars and Beyond, used Von Braun's technical know-how to show audiences, through animated shorts, how, while his words might be conjecture, they weren't pipe dreams. They were possible and achievable. At least 42 million families saw these space, or, as Walt turned them, science factual, episodes. But families, however, were not the only ones watching this television show Disneyland. Now, it's a potentially apocryphal story, but allegedly President Eisenhower even reached out to Walt the morning after the first Man in Space episode aired on March 9, 1955, to ask for a copy of the episode to be sent directly to him. While we aren't sure that this story is true, by the summer of 1955, Eisenhower held a press conference where he announced that by December 1958, the U.S. would put an unmanned satellite in space. The Soviets were also watching the show Disneyland. I mean, it was, after all, the Cold War. And El Sadov, the front man for Russian space delegations in the 1950s, wrote to the president of the International Astronautical Federation asking for a copy of that episode. The final episode of Von Braun's space programs presented on Disneyland aired in 1957. In October 1958, the U.S. government established the National Aeronautics and Space Act, you know, NASA. And in 1960, Von Braun was appointed director of NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. It was his Saturn V launch vehicle that got Americans to the moon. And so that is how, you might say, the American space program all began with a mouse and a former Nazi. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>